This episode was first posted August 15th, 2011, and is also available as a described video on the YouTube channel. This is Movies for the Blind, episode 180. F. Scott Fitzgerald in The Last of the Bells, part one of three. I wrote the book about the pushy little man who winds up floating face down in his own swimming pool. Hello and welcome to Movies for the Blind, where you can enjoy films without looking at a screen. I'm Valerie Hunter. As of this recording, production is beginning on a new film version of The Great Gatsby with Leonardo DiCaprio as the glamorous and mysterious millionaire. The most famous version, with Robert Redford in the title role, was released in 1974. That's the same year the movie we're starting here debuted on American television. It's also based on a work by F. Scott Fitzgerald, but also goes deeper into the life of the author himself, which only makes sense since Fitzgerald's works often took cues from his life alone and with his wife Zelda. It's their situation that will take up most of this episode, as Fitzgerald struggles to get started the story that first appeared in the Saturday Evening Post in 1929. He's played here by a guy I mentioned back when we featured The Secret of Dr. Kildare, Kildare's TV incarnation, Richard Chamberlain. First airing January 6, 1974, this is F. Scott Fitzgerald and The Last of the Bells. An ocean liner powers through a cloudy night. On a table in a ballroom, a folded menu stands, reading RMS Carmania, 2nd October 1928, Captain's Gala. The room is mainly empty. Richard Chamberlain. A couple sits at one of the tables as a green balloon drifts down from the ceiling. Blythe Danner. A maitre d' checks his watch as he and a waiter attend to an older party of four who begin to stand. We're the last ones out. It's embarrassing. Not quite the last. A woman points to the couple. Who is it? You know, what's his name, the writer? What writer? You know who I mean. Married that southern belle that was supposed to be the original Blackburn. Remember, they were such a beautiful couple. Pictures in magazines and papers. They used to do wild things like ride around on the top of taxis and jump into public fountains. Oh, I know the one. I've seen his stories in the Saturday Evening Post. He seems to write a lot about himself and his wife. That him? Oh, Arthur. What's the name of that writer that was carrying on in the observation lounge last night? The party walks off. F. Scott Fitzgerald and the last of the bells. They say that when a highbrow meets a lowbrow walking along Broadway. Amid limp streamers and fallen balloons, the couple remains. A handsome man smoking, a lovely yet frail blonde woman sitting quietly, neither smiling. Crazy rhythm, I've gone crazy too. A yellow balloon bounces, popped by a cigarette, and the woman barely flinches. He snickers, but she keeps staring straight ahead. With waiters behind him, He takes a champagne bottle from a bucket and goes to fill her glass, but she covers it, turning to him. He fills his own, and she retracts her hand from her glass. He drops the bottle back in the bucket, then brings the glass to his lips, but spills a little, prompting one of the waiters. All right, sir? 
afraid I've made a mess of your tablecloth. Not to worry, sir. No harm done. He blots it. What about your sleeve? I'm all right. Shall I take a damp cloth to it, sir? No, no, I'm fine. Don't fuss, Cyril. Don't fuss. Anything more I can bring you, sir? What about you, madam? More coffee? We'll be out of your way as soon as the wine is gone. We're not keeping you, are we, Cyril? Not at all, sir. Beg pardon, sir, but the name is Sydney, actually. Sydney. Sorry, not Cyril. Sydney. Thank you, sir. He starts to step away. Do you know who I am, Sydney? Why, yes, sir. You're Mr. Fitzgerald, sir. I'm F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yes, sir. The name is not unknown, even in your country. I expect you've heard of the great Gatsby. The great... Uh, Gatsby. Yes, I believe I have, sir. Something to do with munitions, hasn't he? Great Gatsby is a book. A book, sir? The London Times adored it. The Manchester Guardian said its author was the most gifted and promising of all the young American novels. Books and Bookman called it a huge advance over Mr. Fitzgerald's previous success, this side of paradise. Dear God. Scott turns to the woman, whose eyes are closed. My wife has found her tongue. Yes, dear. Is it? Let's go. Very well. Chatterbox. They stand, with Zelda draping a grey stole over her shoulder. You seem to be the last. I apologize. Scott pulls out money for Sydney. Please don't think badly of us. Uh, that's not necessary, sir. Not to you, perhaps. Think of it as answering my need rather than yours. Well, thanks very much. Very generous. Not generous. Selfish. Selfish, sir? Selfish. Scott pats his shoulder. See you tomorrow. And steps toward Zelda. Good night, sir. Madam? She just stands sadly. Night, Cyril. Scott offers his arm, and she takes it. Then they cross the room. Written for television by James Costigan. The short story, The Last of the Bells, by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Executive producer, Herbert Brotkin. Scott lets Zelda step ahead of him on their way out of the room. Producer, Robert Buzz Berger. Director, George Schaefer. Later, at the Wilmington train station, a passenger train slows to a stop. Through one of the windows, Scott looks out to a man waving at him from the platform. Zelda looks toward him as well. Scott steps down and meets him. Big, you big love. How are you? I'm fine, fine. How are you? <laughs> I miss you. Zelda! Ah, Zelda. Who like a Nicean bark of yore. She stares at him. Beautiful as ever. She smirks. <laughs> what a gallant liar you are, John. Kissing his cheek, she steps away. Concerned, he then turns to a young girl. Now, who is this mysterious lady in the Paris hat? This lady, sir, is my daughter. The renowned world traveler and champion croquet player. Bonjour, mademoiselle. Bonjour, monsieur. I hope you had a pleasant trip. Oui, j'ai fait un bon voyage, merci. You can speak English now, darling. We're home. Scott walks her off past Zelda, who smirks more. 
The returning party takes their baggage to two cars outside the station. Later, the cars travel along a winding road. A man drives one car carrying Zelda, her daughter, and her nanny, while in the other car... French governess and a chauffeur. Now that's what I call slang. Philippe was a professional boxer before he took to the wheel. He's a good man to know. I got into a couple of pretty rough scrapes this summer. Where? Bars. Where the hell do you think? I had the honor of being incarcerated on two separate occasions. Well, how's the trip otherwise? There was no otherwise. It was all booze and general unpleasantness. You and Zelda? Zelda has turned quiet. Did what? Quiet. Did you notice? I noticed something. We quarreled in Paris. Lord, how we quarreled. Unbelievable, the things we said to each other. Very ugly. She's been quiet ever since. Sometimes she doesn't speak for hours. Was it another woman? No. Did she? No, that's not the problem. Even when we say it is. It's never other people, it's us. Something about the way we are. Each man kills the thing he loves. <laughs> Don't quote Oscar Wilde to me, I've got a hangover. Can't you dredge up something appropriate from Ella Wheeler Wilcox or Edgar Guest? There were days when they hurt each other purposely, taking almost a delight in the thrust. What's that? A beautiful and damned at Scott Fitzgerald. Scott looks ahead, smoking. The cars round a curve under graceful trees. In her car, Zelda rides with little expression, her daughter beside her. We ride on near a river. In the other car... Get any work done this summer? A few short stories, nothing I'm proud of. Well, what about the new novel? I'd put my soul in hock if I could get six months free and clear to finish it. Well... As soon as you're settled in here... As soon as I get settled in here, I'll have to grind out another story to pay for this trip. I haven't even got an idea, let alone characters or a plot. I'm dry at the moment. Uh, you can tell me it's none of my business, but... You and Zelda could cut down a bit on the high life, couldn't you? It's none of your business. You don't have to spend every penny you earn. We're way past that stage. We've already spent money I may never earn. I'm probably a year's income in debt already just to my agent and my publisher. How's the law racket? The law racket? It's a little slow right now. What's the matter with us, Biggs? Ten years ago, we thought we'd be millionaires by the start. Scott switches cigarettes. These are the boom years. Why aren't we booming? All right. We're alive. We have that distinction, yes. Tom Griffin is dead. Did you know? No. Huh? He killed himself and his wife. Why? You tell me. I heard about Deborah falling out a window. Falling or jumping. George Markle getting beaten up in a speakeasy and crawling back to the Princeton Club to die. On the whole, not an auspicious year for Princeton men. Well, if you think about all that, you realize we're in pretty good shape. We're damn well off, in fact. Speak for yourself, John. They drive under a natural archway of trees bending high over the road. The blue is waiting for you back in your own backyard. 
they arrive at a stately mansion fronted by huge columns. Back in your own backyard. Only the daughter leans forward with some anticipation. A sweeping staircase leads from a front garden to the wide veranda. Zelda stares at it unsmiling. John slows his car to a stop. Followed by the other car. Scott steps out and walks around John's car as the others get out. Scott walks ahead toward it, taking a set of keys from his suit vest. Chances are it's open. I arranged for a couple of cleaning ladies to come in this morning. Scott heads up the stairs. They're probably upstairs. I told them to do the bedrooms first. Zelda approaches, glancing around the greenery. John turns to her. Anyway, you're back at Ellerslie. Looking up at the house, she steps to the stairs and goes up them slowly. John follows. Inside, Scott makes his way through the dim rooms with furniture covered by sheets. Zelda and John step in as well. Scott pulls back curtains to let in some light. You might have found this something a little less cavernous, John. First time you saw it, when you first came to live here last year? You said it would bring you your exact words, a judicious tranquility. Judicious? That's a lawyer's word. That's what you said. I was wrong, dead wrong. It's too big and unfriendly. She turns to John, smiling. It's never brought us anything but unhappiness. It never will. It hates us. She walks on. John and Scott look at each other. Through your window pane, back in your own back. Reaching the bottom of a staircase, she looks up, through where the stairs curl around, up flight after flight, making her look small. Back in your own Later. Adopting a similar pose to a porcelain doll of a ballerina, Zelda dances, keeping one arm still and the other waving gracefully. She wears a white button-down shirt with its sleeves rolled up to her elbows. Scott and the daughter, Scotty, sit at a large dinner table in another room. Zelda hops across her room in a short white dancing skirt and tights, then breaks position to stop the record. Her place at the table remains empty. As Scotty eats something from a bowl and glances at her father, who finishes a drink and pours from a decanter while coffee sits in front of him. Lifting his full glass, he glares across the table at the empty space. Zelda hops in place with one hand on a ballet bar and the other out toward a mirror. As she checks her position in it, a hand makes pencil doodles with a flicking motion on paper. It's Scott, sitting at his desk in a library. He looks up toward the music and leans back in his chair. Dropping the pencil, he gets up and paces. 
opening a door. He looks out. Then he turns away. With his hands in his pockets, he looks at a hutch with glass doors and steps toward it. He opens the doors and pulls out a helmet with a round top and flat brim surrounding it. He looks at it as he paces. Yeah? Philippe enters. What do you want? Monsieur Vassaufiel, ce soir? Oh, I told you earlier, I have to work tonight. Dommage. I have to make money to pay your salary, vous comprenez? Stepping past him, Scott sets down the helmet and sits. I, uh, keep the car ready? Yes? Keep the car ready, no. Now go away, go to bed. Scott leans his elbows on the desk. Philippe picks up the helmet. Monsieur Sebate, don't again. Sebate. I never got overseas. I missed the war. I wanted to go. Scott takes it back. It was actually on the boat. And puts it on. Then news of the armistice came and they marched us off again. It was all over and I missed it. He takes it off and leans forward. I wanted to see that war in the worst way. In school, I wanted to make an impression, but I never had enough allowance. I wanted to play football, but I was too slight. I was always getting banged up. I wanted... Yes. Monsieur wanted. Uh... I forgot what I was going to say. You go ahead and put the car away. I won't be going anywhere. He drops the helmet and picks up the pencil. Philippe heads for the door where he came in and opens it. He leaves. Startled by the door closing, Scott drops his pencil. Zelda's arm waves as she stretches toward her leg, which is propped up on the bar. Scott leaves the library and crosses a hall to the closed door of Zelda's practice room, where he pauses. He steps toward Philippe, who stands with his coat. Don't give me that smug I told you so look, monsieur. You heard me. He helps Scott into the coat, and they turn to Zelda's door. They continue. Madame danced much tonight. Yes. Elle aime bien la danse, huh? We used to dance together. We did everything together. She could drink as much as any man in the room and still be the wittiest, most exciting, most beautiful. Maintenant, elle ne sort jamais avec vous. Elle, elle, she, she does don't come out with you anymore. She does don't come out with me anymore. Scott gets his hat and puts it on as he leaves with Philippe. 
and Zelda keep stretching. Later, Scott and Philippe walk along a stone wall until they reach a door. They wait in darkness. A tiny door opens. Who is it? I'm here, Zola. Who? Victor Hugo. You a member here? Just tell him Andy sent me. Andy? Andy who? Andy Jackson, sir. Moonshine's gift to the nation. Here's his picture. In case you forgot what he looked like. Scott hands him money. There's another. Oh, yeah. The man opens the larger door. Oh, no. No, I'm sorry. What's the matter? Too few Andys? I'm sorry, Mr. Fitzgerald, but you remember what happened the last time you were in here, last spring? No chance to repeat, pal. Never chew my cabbage twice, as the fellow says. He shakes his head. This gentleman is my physician. The eminent French gynecologist, Dr. Louis Pasteur, famous for having treated Isidore Duncan for athlete's foot. If he could speak English, he'd tell you my health is too delicate to let me do anything but sit quietly on the sidelines and observe the gentle pleasures of your charming establishment. Scott steps past the doorman with Philippe following. Soon after, with people dancing and a combo playing, Scott and Philippe sit at a table. Meanwhile, wearing a silk robe, Zelda steps into Scotty's room, where her daughter sleeps, but soon opens her eyes. Is it my birthday? Not yet, darling. Not quite yet. Soon? Don't get my dolls. Smiling, Zelda puts the covers snug to Scotty's chin and kisses her cheek. She pets the girl's head as she stands straight, then switches off a bedside lamp. Soon after, Zelda climbs the winding staircase She reaches a door and unhooks a lock to open it. She enters darkness, but switches on a light to reveal an attic. She sits before an unfinished dollhouse, dipping a brush in a paint can and taking off the excess on the edge. She starts painting the inside of the house. At the speakeasy, the combo keeps playing and patrons keep dancing. At Scott and Philippe's table, among empty bottles. As more booze arrives, Scott turns to a man at the next table. I beg your pardon. I said, shut up. He turns away from Scott. Shut up. He turns to Philippe. Did he say shut up? Philippe nods. What would that be in French, Doctor? Fermez la bouche. That's rather personal, isn't it? Scott turns back again. Strikes me as being rather personal. He smacks his back. Do I know you, sir? You don't have to know me to keep quiet. Fitzgerald is my name. F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah, so what? I wrote the book about the pushy little man who winds up floating face down in his own swimming pool. Look, we're not interested in your pedigree. Oh, somebody at your table might have read it. 
But I hadn't reckoned with the rate of illiteracy in your part of the room. The man stands, and so does Scott. He gets punched. Later in the practice room. <laughs> you see, that's how he got me. Caught me off balance. Try that again. Wearing boxing gloves, Scott spars with Philippe and counterpunches. Gotcha that time, my dear doctor. <laughs> oh, boy, if I'd had that punch ready, when that baby came over in the speakeasy. <laughs> in their suits with jackets off, they spar some more in front of the mirror. When Zelda appears in the doorway in a nightgown, Philippe notices, then so does Scott. Well? You'll wake the child. Shut the door, then. He turns to Philippe. Come on, come back. Try to catch me off guard. Zelda watches blankly. <laughs> Philippe blocks Scott's punches. His punch knocks Scott back toward the mirror. You'll break my mirror! Good. When Scott punches it, Zelda runs toward him and blocks it. Our whole house mirror. Spends more time with that thing than she does with me. Come on, baby. Try that again. He steps away and returns to sparring. Scott, I want you to stop. What? I want you to stop dancing. What good does it do me? I have to dance. Rubbish! I have to have something of my own. It can't all be your work, your world. Everywhere we go, everything we do, everyone we see is because of you. You haven't done too badly. You're not exactly anonymous. I made you famous. I don't want to be famous. No, you don't. Anyway, that's not me. I am not a girl in a book. I'm not a girl in a short story. I am myself. I want myself back. You give me... She runs at him. Back myself. You don't want yourself. You don't want to be yourself. You want to be me. No. He sits her down. It's competition of 1928. It's not true. It's not true. You had to ride. You had to paint. Now you have to be a famous ballerina. Don't you know dancers start to train before they're 10 years old? You're almost 30. I danced when I was little. I was a wonderful dancer. I will dance again. She stands. Oh, you're kidding yourself. He keeps sparring. Last winter in Hollywood, you said I had no right to say anything sassy about that little old Wampus baby star you were carrying on with. He stops. I wasn't carrying on. I never touched her and you know it. You said she was worth more than me because she worked at something. She did something. Well, now I'm trying to do something. And all you can do is pick on me. That's why you're doing it, isn't it? Revenge. It's not the reason. You're punishing me for saying that. You're punishing me because of that girl. He stalks to a mantle. I don't want to understand this all. And it's not because of that. It's not because I want to be you. She joins him. It's just I want to be somebody wonderful. So you can love me again. Liar. He knocks over the ballerina doll. God, you promised you wouldn't. As she gathers the pieces on the floor, Scott gets Philippe to untie his gloves. You cut yourself. She cradles some of the pieces like she's holding a baby bird. He only did it because he knows it's the one thing in the house I care about. You're going to cry now. <laughs> Later, she holds one doll's arm to its body as she sits on a bed with Scott standing across the room. Please don't cry. He takes off his tie. She'll never be home again. He takes off his vest. Zelda, please. You seemed so kind at first. Daddy said, it's wrong. He is wrong for you. And she wouldn't listen. Stop it. Never see what he's done. 
He approaches her. Yes, broke all the pieces. Please, darling. He crouches to her. Please don't cry. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. There's somebody now. My wife. He holds her wrist. No, I was somebody in my own right. They said I was the prettiest girl in Montgomery, Alabama. The prettiest and the smartest. Oh, Mr. Fitzgerald was just one of my bows in those days, just one of many. Don't. Don't. I chose him, now. I want him. I could do it again if he'd let me. Baby, baby, you haven't lost me. I feel like I've lost you sometimes. You spend so much time on the dancing. She looks down at him. I love you so much. Don't you know that? Poor child. You got a handkerchief? He pulls one from a trouser pocket and gives it to her. There's blood on this. Oh, goofball. You hurt yourself. She wipes the corner of his mouth and his cheek, then kisses him. As she caresses his hair, he kisses her neck hungrily. No. No. He nuzzles her. Then they kiss again, passionately. They embrace. Seems like my father's the only place we ever meet anymore. They lie back on the bed. Another day at Ellerslie. Scott writes at his desk as a cigarette burns in a nearby ashtray. Grabbing a sheet of paper, he crumples it up and throws it down as he sits back in his chair. He glances out a window. Then he turns back to the desk and hunches over a new sheet of paper. He writes again. He crumples up the paper again and throws it past a full wastebasket. Soon after, he wanders the grounds among old lush trees. the house. He looks up at it and sees a smaller house. He considers the image of a white two-story house with a modest veranda and continues walking toward his own house. Stepping up past the huge columns and across the great veranda, he slows and turns toward a window on his left. He slowly approaches it. 
and looks in at Zelda stretching at the bar. In his mind, he sees a different woman ballet dancing, younger with brown wavy hair to her shoulders. He focuses on Zelda again as she bounces through her stretches. Later, Philippe drives him away. In town, Scott sits in a barber's chair, having his hair combed. As the barber steps away, Scott closes his eyes. He looks at himself in a mirror and thinks. He sees a younger man in a military uniform instead and considers. Later, at his desk, he taps a pencil and writes. He starts to smile. Tearing off the page, he sets it aside, then bends down to the next page and continues writing. The day came when I went into Tarleton for a haircut and ran into a nice fellow named Bill Knowles. The first page has the title, The Last of the Bells. In the story, trees are full and green in a town park about 10 years earlier, with ladies wearing long demure dresses and gloves, and many of the gentlemen wearing uniforms like Scott saw in the barber's mirror. A horse-drawn cart travels around the square. The younger man Scott saw stands near a recruiting poster. Andy! Who's that? Bill Knowles. Knowles, <laughs> hey, how are you? I didn't know you were stationed down here. No, I'm not. As of tomorrow morning, I've been transferred to Texas. Aviation. Hey, that's keen. <laughs> yeah, that's what I wanted. They walk. How long have you been here? Up a week. Find the girl? Not yet. Better get moving, fella. There's four Ivy League second Louis down here for every girl with any kind of looks and any kind of family. I'm only interested in the best. Calhoun, Goodwin, Tupper. What's that? Three top girls in Tarleton. Haley Calhoun, Betty Lee Goodwin, Mary... Say no more. Is she number one? Who? Amy Calhoun. Haley, absolutely. Numero uno. And she's the one I want to meet. They stop. Just like that? Just like that. I marvel at your presumption, little man. But it just so happens, by the sheerest coincidence, that you are in luck. You are in the most fantastic luck. What are you doing around 7 tonight? Later. Is this her street? Yes. Is that she your soul and patience? You think she'll like me? Well, that's up to you, isn't it? Listen, as soon as the pleasantries are over, you make your excuses and scram. This is my last date with her, and I don't intend to spend it with you hanging around, batting those big blue eyes at her. As to what happens between you two after I'm gone, well, if it weren't you, it would be somebody else. And you'd prefer your successor to be a Harvard man, at the very least. There's the house. It's the one Scott saw in his mind. Andy and Bill approach it. You'll keep us waiting exactly ten minutes. It's traditional. The front door opens. I'm so sorry I'm late. It's the young woman Scott envisioned. Wow. I thought I heard you come ten minutes ago. I mean, um, I'm sure I heard somebody down here for Pacing up and down. Coming around a corner. What, Candy, how are you? She turns from another soldier to Bill. 
who glares at him. Uh, Cammy, honey, I want to whisper to you. She steps closer to him. She touches his aviation pin. All right, then. We'll make it Thursday. That means sure. Conceding, Cammy walks down the front steps past Bill and Andy. He's a pilot, isn't he? You suppose he uses those on his plane? Spurs. Switch on. Contact. Giddy up. Cammy glances back at Andy. Come on in. Bill and Andy head up the steps. And so Andy takes his first steps into the social whirlwind of Miss Ailey Calhoun. How does she navigate it? Does Andy stand a chance? Learn more in part two next time on Movies for the Blind. Already, movie fans may recognize the distinctive southern lilt of Susan Sarandon, who would play a somewhat similar bell in a very different time in Bull Durham. We'll hear more from and about her next time. Her Ailey is inspired by Zelda, who is played here by Blythe Danner a critically acclaimed and almost ubiquitous actress on stage, film, and TV for three decades. She's become known more recently for being a mom, Will's mom on Will and Grace, wife of the imposing dad Robert De Niro plays in Meet the Parents and Little Fockers, and real-life mom to Gwyneth Paltrow. For more information and links about the movies, about description, and how to subscribe, go to the blog, moviesfortheblind.com, where you can also find out about this podcast's Creative Commons license. Also, check out the Movies for the Blind page on Facebook and the channel on YouTube. Many of the MP3s are hosted by Blind File Sharing, so to find out more, visit blindfilesharing.com. And the movies are from the Internet Archive, so please support universal access to human knowledge by visiting and donating at archive.org. Thank you for downloading and for listening. Be back next week. Take care. (laughs) 